Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in our satsang, I'm going to continue the commentaries on a very beautiful text, Hamsa Upanishad, whose commentary I began last time. This commentary of the Hamsa Upanishad takes two satsangs, so it will be over in tonight's satsang. It's a beautiful text. We, at the request of some of the pupils of Agama, I wanted to bring to you the Upanishads of Yoga. There are more than 200, 200 Upanishadic texts, and most of them are Vedantic and very philosophical. There are about 20, 16 of them, which are the Upanishads of Yoga, directly related with yoga practice. And we looked into the Mahavakya Upanishad a few weeks ago. And last week we started looking into this Hamsa Upanishad. I don't know if till the end of this season I'm going to continue non-stop with Upanishads. Uh, the subject is a little bit hard and strong. The example of this Hamsa Upanishad is brilliant because this is a text which is of about 22 strophes. 22 versets, or actually they are not versets, they are more than verses, they are strophes. And these um, 22 strophes of text, which is therefore not too much, they are containing a richness of references to yoga practices. For those of you who are, who are dropping in for this satsang and don't have a clue of what the first part was, Let's remind that the name Hamsa is a double entendre name, which on one hand in Sanskrit it means swan, and it is supposed to be a symbol of the soul, which like a swan is a migratory bird, and goes from body to body, from body to body, until one day you reach Nirvana, and then this process of transmigration stops, because of the reaching of the enlightenment, of the liberation. So swan is a metaphorical name for people's spirit, for people's Atman. And at the same time, Hamsa is a synthesis of two mantras, the mantra Ham and Sa, which together form a composite mantra, which is the mantra of the vital breath, the mantra of the breathing. And again, as a Buddhist book title said, breathe, you are alive. Like breathing is the symbol of being alive, is the symbol of being a sentient being, a conscious being, in a physical body, in the world, right now, living, experiencing, doing spiritual practice, and that's why it's very precious. And therefore this hamsa means, on one hand, the energy of the vital breath, which is the energy of life, it means life itself, and on the other hand is a metaphorical reference to the human soul. And the text in the first 11 strophes, which we commented last time, about half of it, was not disappointing at all, because it went through a lot of things. It told us about the power and the secrecy of this tradition. It told us about the meaning of this mantra, Hamsa, Hamsa, related to the breath. And then it started going with us through a lot of yoga techniques. It went directly, such a short text, and is describing three, four very powerful themes in Indian yoga. 
very powerful themes. In the strophe number, in the strophe number six, it already talked about the technique of Kundalini Yoga, rising, doing pranayama, and rising the energy chakra to chakra all the way to Sahasrara, which is a process which is like one of the fundamental mudras of Kundalini Yoga that we teach here in Agama in level 16 in the Kundalini program, the Yoni Mudra. And so it described the rising of Kundalini, a technology for rising the Kundalini, and then reaching the Supreme Spirit, the connection between the individual spirit and the universal spirit. Then on the strophe number 8, it came and told us, when you do this union between the earth and the heaven, actually you can be located in the middle, and talked to us about Hrid, about the Hrid Chakra, the secondary secret chakra, which is the location of the Jivatman, of the soul. And it's one of the very few texts in India which actually called the eight spokes of Hrid Chakra and described them. And it was surprising for those of you who heard that description, that the eight spokes are some of them full of light and some of them full of darkness, like the human soul is somewhere in the middle between the light and darkness with higher and lower things into it, the battlefield of superior and inferior forces. And then it uh, talked to us, even when talking about Hrid Chakra, it talked to us about the three states, the four states, wakefulness, dream, sleep without dreams, and Turiya. So it talked about Yoga Nidra and going consciously out of the body and going into lucid dreaming. So it made a reference to that. And then it even started mentioning in the strophe number 9 references to Nada, to Nada Yoga, to making yoga with sound, which is what here in Agama we call the Laya Yoga with mantras, the Laya Yoga with sounds, and which is a very, very beloved, respected, powerful, precise, and very important practice. So it started making reference to that. So, so many things, just one, two strophes for one whole technology, and all of them spinning around this concept of hamsa, that hamsa is the prana, hamsa is the breath, hamsa is the kundalini, hamsa is the life which we have in our being, and the fact of being alive. And in the shloka number 10, which is the last which I commented explicitly, it gave us that this swan thing, this hamsa, is both spirit, it means both spirit or soul, which migrates from body to body, it's our destiny, it's our soul, and at the same time, it's a powerful mantra, and it even gave us a typical mantra shastra analysis, that who is the rishi who revealed this mantra, who, what is the meter of this mantra, what is the bija which is referring to it, and all those things. All these things you can, of course, refer to by listening to the lecture. These lectures are sooner or later getting uploaded, so they will be available for you. In case you missed one of them, you can try to go and listen to them, and hopefully you are going to get the points. And now we are continuing. This is where we stopped due to time and to all the other constraints last week, and uh, we are about to start the strophe. I would call them always shlokas, but... This text is not written in shlokas. Shlokas mean two-liners, like verses, and this text is written in very unequal strophes. Some of them are almost one line, two lines, and some of them are like 
10, 12, 15 lines of text, so very long uh, strophes. So it's a very irregular uh, Sanskrit which is used in, the, in this Upanishad. And again, um, I will draw the conclusions when I finish this. So right now the text moved into Nada, inner sound, working with mantras and focusing more on this process of Nada Yoga, Laya Yoga, so it now goes into another direction. It describes another very important practice of yoga. And it's like it's taken two, three, four capital radical practices of yoga. And all of them put together, they are one of the yoga Upanishads. The Upanishad of yoga, which describes, according to the author of this Upanishad, he is describing a perfect path to spiritual realization. So after they describe the mantra of the swan, the hamsa mantra, technically it's hamsa and it has nothing to do with any swan. It's just the sound of inhale and exhale. But it metaphorically can be connected with that. And they are very happy to have double entendre or sometimes even triple entendre in the Sanskrit texts because it makes the text so rich in innuendos and in correspondences and also incomprehensible for outsiders who get lost in all this labyrinth, then um, it continues by talking to us about this mantra. It wanted to tell us something about the sound technology and working with the mantra. So it defined this mantra that who is the rishi, what is the meter, what is this according to the standards of the mantra shastra. And in the verset or strophe number 11, it reads something as follows. This mantra has to be repeated 21,600 times, meditating on the six centers, which are the six chakras, day and night. Even this simple statement, it's so big, because on one hand, the mantra Hamsa is called in the Indian tradition, and even in this Upanishad, the name is used in Sanskrit, it is called Ajapa. Ajapa means no japa, like no repetition. It's a mantra which you don't need to repeat. Why don't you need to repeat it? Because you are breathing. You are breathing non-stop. And by breathing, you say it anyway. Of course, the catch is that you are saying it unconsciously and automatically. And then Paramhamsa Yogananda says, if you say Hamsa, 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 Hamsa unconsciously, it will take you about one million years to reach to the state of Samadhi. Like this is the slowest possible yoga that you can imagine. Repeating the mantra Hamsa unconsciously. <coughs> if you repeat it consciously, it's a totally different dish. It's a totally different story. Because if you repeat it consciously, it's like you assume it. You endorse it. You, that's a mantra which you are using. And doing it consciously, it becomes accelerated spiritual practice. So the question is, or the idea is, <coughs> willy-nilly, you averagely, each and every one of you in this world, averagely repeats consciously or unconsciously this mantra 21,600 times. Because you breathe 21,600 times per day. And the question is, how many of these 21,600 will be conscious? Like, will it happen that out of the 24 hours of the day, you will take half an hour? That's the 48th part of the day. And for half an hour, you are going to sit 
and just follow your breath and say hum sa hum sa inside your mind and do it consciously well you have stolen 5% or 2% of consciousness out of the unconsciousness out of the 48 half hours which exist in a day and out of which you probably sleep 16 of them there are 32 half hours during the conscious time, like 16 hours of consciousness, of wakefulness. And of those 32 blocks of half an hour, one of them, you did it consciously. Out of 48, one. That's 2%, a little bit more than 2%. So 2% of your life is not unconscious breathing, it's conscious breathing. If you do one hour, you have done like 5% of your life is becoming conscious and of course, the author says, this mantra has to be repeated. To be repeated doesn't mean that you repeat it. It's there. It has to be acknowledged. Like you have to do it consciously, follow it. It's there, and I'm looking at it consciously. So this mantra has to be brought to the surface. It has to be highlighted, because it's there anyways. So it's highlighted. 21,000, 6,100 times per day, or even half an hour is good enough. It will do something. And thus, it says day and night. This is really a very powerful statement. Its equivalent exists in Christianity, where Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Christ, created a statement in one of his letters to one of the Christian communities. He says, brothers, because of the forces of the demons being so strong in this world, you should, I know that you have problems and you have been persecuted or you are a big dilemma. And he says, so though you should, for this, you should pray ceaselessly. And everybody who in a letter will receive a thing like, hey, you know, you are having a problem, pray ceaselessly, which means pray every day. Whenever you catch half an hour, fall on your knees and pray. But actually, if you take the expression pray ceaselessly at its literal value, which is usually not done, pray ceaselessly means pray 24-7. It means learn to pray non-stop. And the great saints of Christianity, the great mystics of Christianity, especially in the Eastern Christianity, in the Orthodox Christianity, this became their ideal. Like, how can we get the people living in monasteries to do prayer so much that eventually they start doing it automatically while they talk, while they eat, while they defecate, and even while they dream. Even in the dreams, their internal voice should repeat the prayer. In the Orthodox Christianity of Eastern Europe, Greece and the Balkans and Russia and so on, this prayer which they repeated non-stop was preferentially the famous prayer called the prayer of the heart. This is the, one of the most important technologies of prayer of the whole planet, which is called the technology of the prayer of the heart. And the people who did the prayer of the heart seriously, they were trying to get to the point where they did the prayer of the heart 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, 24 hours. Like when they did lots of prayer together with brahmacharya, fasting, sublimation and everything, then automatically they started having lucid dreaming 
and the mantra practice, for them it was a prayer practice, it went even in their dreams. So the, for example, when the Greek mystics, they made a collection of prayer, they called it the philokalia, which is a very significant name in the Greek culture. It's instead of philosophy, philosophia, which is loving wisdom, philokalia is loving something else. Kali is goodness, love, goodness, kindliness. So philokalia is the love of goodness. It's like the compassion and the loving kindness of the Buddhism. It's loving what is good. Like there are people, and I always say this, who love to be good. They simply love to be good. And they want to be good all the time. And there are people who at times, especially when they are wounded, they go and hurt other people. They go and hit other people. They go and get nasty. People like the great saints of Christianity, they understood Jesus, that okay, maybe Jesus criticized some people because he was on a mission from God, and he was God, and he came to preach something. But everybody else who is a Tom, Dick and Harry, they should put a sock in it, and they should just be kind. Like, let God judge and punish other people if they you. Your task is to be compassionate, loving and kind to the last millimeter. Like if possible, in your life, there should be no evil. There should be no wickedness. Never, ever. Don't harm anybody. Either you are jealous or pissed off or frustrated or angry or whatever you are. Never harm anybody consciously and deliberately and knowingly. This is Philokalia. And in Philokalia, which is a collection of 12 volumes written by the great ancient saints of Christianity and refers to prayer and internal discipline, and which is the fundamental book to read if any one of you considers Christian mysticism as your basic line of evolution. If you consider that your basic line, I advise not to miss reading the Philokalia. It's 12 volumes. It's very big and heavy. But what I'm trying to say here on the front of the Philokalia when it is translated, there is this logo taken from Paul, the Apostle of Christ, which simply says, pray ceaselessly. This is the motto. This is the, the, the motto of the Christian mysticism. The purpose, you will reach perfection in the day when you will pray 24 hours non-stop. Many other religions I have seen in the Islamic religion that they carry little malas like this and they pretend all the time to move their fingers like to say Allah Akbar or whatever they say, whichever of the Muslim prayers they say. This spirit went in, even into the Islam. Sufis and other Islamic mystics, they preach the same. You should Constantly, 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 even when you talk to people and walk on the street, you should have your little mala there in your hand and say prayers. Your mind should say prayers non-stop. And the purpose is that you get it even in your dreams. Well, the same thing is said here in a yogic way, that this mantra has to be repeated 21,600 times, which means 24 hours, not 16 hours per day. All 24 hours, day and night. The ideal, which is 
very discreetly placed there is that you should say hamsa, hamsa, hamsa even when you dream, even when you fall asleep. Something in your mind should be aware of exhale and inhale and it should go conscious. Hamsa, hamsa while you are dreaming. This practice of hamsa which is so uh, powerful in the Upanishads and where yoga tends to go more Vedantic, although it speaks about the chakras, which is a, not a Vedantic thing, it's a purely tantric thing. So here we are having a hybrid. This is exactly the environment which was uh, characteristic to the Kriya Yoga of Yogananda. Paramahamsa Yogananda, with his famous autobiography of a yogi, and his uh, Kriya Yoga is basically exactly this. Kriya Yoga consists, and we will teach it somewhere in the end of June in the metaphysical workshop, Uh, it consists of a breathing which goes through the six chakras, not through the seven, so it goes through the middle of your forehead, so Aptilajna, and in which basically one repeats Hamsa, Hamsa. You are breathing, going through the chakras according to a special pattern, and it is the mantra Hamsa. And the fanatics of Kriya Yoga, like Yogananda himself, they say if you really want to get enlightened, you have to be able to do that minimum eight hours per day. Like it's in a certain way, it's a very boring technology. In yoga and in spirituality, and this is a small parenthesis, we have two types of people and practitioners. We have the practitioners who want to practice a little bit of everything, exactly like a generalist doctor, like a family doctor who knows a little bit about the heart, a little bit about the digestive system, a little bit about the kidneys, and when somebody has a problem, refers to them and identifies immediately the diagnosis. And then there are the specialized doctors, which are cardiologues, only specialized in the heart, specialized in the nose, ears, and throat, specialized on... So the experts in the field... It's the same in yoga. Some people like to have a little bit of everything, and those people love many yoga techniques to practice a little bit, like you are eating 25 Chinese dishes for a lunch, you know, a little bit of 25 different dishes, and then there are the people who love to eat just 55 falafels in one meal, like they want to stuff their face with one thing exclusively. That is the type of the Kriya Yoga of Paramahamsa Yogananda. You don't have 25 techniques or 250 yoga techniques. You have one, exactly like the Christian mystics who do the prayer of the heart. You do the prayer of the heart from the morning till the evening, and if it gets boring, too bad. You have to shoot your monkey mind whenever it gets bored. Like, it's willpower, self-discipline, and it's not supposed to be fun in any way. Your monkey mind, if you go in a Christian Orthodox monastery and you practice the prayer of the heart for one year, I promise, I absolutely guarantee that a part of your mind will get dead bored and you will want to fly out of there and run. And of course, there are people who spend 50 years in a monastery. Like every time when their monkey mind wants to fly, they simply say, shut up. You know? And they just stay there and do it. Pure discipline. This is their love for God. This is their love for Christ. And in yoga, it's the same. Some people love to, people sometimes come to me, this kind of people, and they say, Swami, tell me one thing which I should do. I remember, I've seen once with a yoga teacher this, one, a pupil, a man whom I knew, and so on, he said, 
I want to do one yoga day. I cannot do it. It's like you are teaching us, 25 asanas in the first level. If we stay in Agama for a year or two, we've got more than 200 yoga techniques. And then I have, I'm at a loss at what to choose, what to practice. So he said, can you give me something to practice? And then his teacher simply said, oh yeah, you want one thing to practice? Nauli Kriya. Eight hours per day, Nauli Kriya. Like from morning, since you wake up in the morning till you go to bed, Nauli Kriya, Nauli Kriya, Nauli Kriya, Nauli Kriya, nothing. Forget about Danurasana, forget about Laya Yoga. Nauli Kriya from morning till evening. This man became a monster in the good meaning of the word, like such an incredible practice, but he was this compulsive, obsessive, fanatical person who didn't get bored. Other people get bored much more easily. And they don't like this. And this is how you separate things. In Agama, I, and generally the trend in Agama, is to teach 500 yoga techniques. Because I am a generalist. I like to dabble a little bit in everything. Because I am a guardian, I am a steward of the yoga tradition. For me, it's very important that every single important lineage and technique of the yoga, which is getting lost today when yoga is prostituted and transformed into a gymnastic, I'm preserving it and giving it to the next generation. We are a university of yoga. We are, like Osho was joking, it, even the word university said it's not enough, because university says uni. So I would call it a polyversity. Like a polyuniversity, you know, it's like let's make it a polyversity. In a similar way, I can say I share some of this spirit. Like this is a polyversity of yoga. And then there are some people who like to lock themselves in a room and just do one thing. Like there are teachers, like my good friend Sahajananda, that some of you will meet probably in July, who are this kind of person. Let's do one thing from morning till evening. That's not my psychology. That's not my style. That's not who I am. And I have to live in my shoes, not in somebody else's shoes. So I am a generalist in yoga, and I teach 500 different technologies, and my way is to go with everything in this way. And there is a benefit to this, and some psychological temperaments thrive on this. And that's why some people stay in Agama. Other people feel that they want to become specialized in just one thing or two things and go really hard on those. Like, I want to do Vipassana from morning till evening. Vipassana, Vipassana, Vipassana. Yes, of course, you go to Chom Tong or to Swan Mok and you do Vipassana from morning till evening if that's what you want. No? So there is the way to just pick up a technology and just to deepen that technology in one thing. Here... There is a difference in practice. And this kind of practice where you say I practice something 24 hours per day, I could say, sure, you can practice 25 different yoga techniques 24 hours per day. Like in the morning you wake up and do some pranayama, then you do some sun salutations, then you do a yoga meditation, then you do, I don't know what, some conscious eating and selection of the pranic energy from the food, then you can do some walking meditation, then you make love with your tantric partner and you sublime your energy to Ajna and Sahasrara and you do sexual tantra, then after that God knows what other form of yoga you do. And like this, you do yoga 24-7,
But you do different things during those 24-7, like you alternate different techniques. It's like you are putting together from different techniques. So these are different styles in yoga. And sometimes people in Agama, they get confused because they understand better the other style. And maybe their temperament fits better to the other style. And here, this Upanishad is now giving advice more on the other trend. It says this mantra, like forget about the fact that in Agama we give initiation in about 35 mantras. This mantra, Hamsa, forget all the other 34. Just stick to Hamsa. One is good enough. This can take you to Nirvana. And this mantra has to be repeated 21,600 times. Like as you breathe anyway, 21,600 times, be conscious. Stay with your breath and consciously say Hamsa. Like you have a rosary in your hand and you go Hamsa, 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 Hamsa all the time. And day and night. So this means eventually the purpose of this injunction is you should remember it even in your sleep. Then this becomes complete. Meditating on the six centers. This is the tantric twist to it. This Upanishad is not purely Vedantic. It's a little bit tantric because it speaks about Kundalini, speaks about chakras, it speaks about the eight spokes of a chakra and stuff like this. And this is all tantric knowledge. So this Upanishad is a typical fusion text, is a typical hybrid text, which is partly Upanishad and typically Vedantic, and it's partly Tantric. It's a Tantric Upanishad, and it's a Yoga Upanishad at the same time. So, meditating on the six centers. Please be aware, just for the saying it again, that it says meditating on the six centers. Didn't we know that there were seven Yes, but people always forget to remember that the seventh center, which is called Sahasrara, is not really a center. Sometimes, even in Agama, we have teachers who forget. This is not a crime, so I'm not, we're not uh, making any witch hunt out of it. But I'm saying there are teachers who sometimes forget and say, dear pupils, concentrate on Sahasrara chakra. There is no Sahasrara chakra. Because Sahasrara is not a chakra. Sahasrara is Sahasrara. It doesn't need a second name. You can say Manipura Chakra. You can say Svadhisthana Chakra. But you don't say Sahasrara Chakra. You just say Sahasrara. Period. Because Sahasrara is not a chakra. There are six centers. Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, Anahata, Vishuddha and Ajna. And then there is something above the six centers. Which is a special thing. And which is not really a center. Which is more than a center. That being called Sahasrara, the crown chakra. So here the author says you do this and you meditate on the six chakras. Relying on a text like this, the gurus of the lineage of Paramhamsa Yogananda, they invented the technology of Kriya Yoga. Because in the Kriya Yoga, they work in Ajna, Vishuddha, Anahata, Manipura, Zvadistana, Muladhara and the back. And Sahasrara is not mentioned. And the mantra Hamsa is used. Therefore, this is exactly like here. Anybody in Kriya Yoga can say, we are, according to this verse, this verse from Hamsa Upanishad, sums up the practice of Kriya Yoga. This, repeat this mantra 21,000 times, 600 times consciously, meditating on the six chakras, day and night. 
Consecrating this meditation, the text continues, consecrating this meditation to the sun and the moon, to the impassable Lord and to the unmanifested Brahman, one will bring forth by this means the subtle and formless element that resides as the basis of us all. It's a beautiful way of putting it. Like, what do you focus on? Consecrating this meditation to the sun and the moon. Like, it's a triple consecration. First to the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon are the ha and the tha. This is the basis of hatha yoga. Ida nadi and pingala nadi. The yin and the yang, as a Taoist would say. So, first of all, consecrate this to the accomplishment of the balance of the lunar and solar. To the impassable Lord. The impassable Lord is a very beautiful metaphor. For those of you who studied the initiation of Tara here in Agama, you should remember what it is, because impassable, the Lord of the yogis is Shiva, and the impassable Lord, the impassable form of Shiva, is called in Sanskrit Akshobhya. Akshobhya means unruffled, unimpassable, undisturbed by anything. And therefore, here it says, focus on Akshobhya, Shiva, which is the concert of Tara, which is equivalent with the Nilkant Shiva, the Shiva corresponding to Vishuddha Chakra. And basically it says, focus to a high form, consecrate to Shiva in one of his higher forms, such as Shiva Akshobhya, Shiva the undisturbed. This rabbit hole is much bigger. I'm Akshobhya in Tibetan Buddhism refers to the water element, therefore to Svadhisthana as well, and so does the white Tara, and they correspond again to the water element, so it's a combination of Shiva as seen in Svadhisthana, Shiva as seen in Vishuddha, and so on. We don't need to go there. Basically, the text says first think about the sun and the moon, Balance the sun and the moon. That's the first consecration of this practice. The second consecration is think about Shiva in his superior form. Shiva on Vishuddha. Shiva impassable. And then finally to the unmanifested Brahman. Unmanifested Brahman. You often have seen me doing that egg shape with a black thing on top of it. As manifestation and non-manifestation. The manifestation is called Prakriti, nature, and the unmanifestation is called Purusha, or spirit, and it represents the void or the transcendental. So here it says the third consecration, you consecrate first to balancing, to Shiva, impassable, like on a high chakra, and finally to Brahman in Sahasrara, the unmanifested Brahman, Purusha, the highest form, pure spirit. The pure consciousness, Shiva as Prakasha, for those of you who have attended Kashmiri Shaivas, just to give you a line of connection there, the transcendental part of the divine consciousness. So it says, if you consecrate in this way, like take care of the polarity, there are mysteries of the Kriya Yoga initiation, which we cannot, I cannot do a Kriya Yoga initiation on a satsang, which is a public event. And because of that, uh, there are some things about the polarity, like the chakras are sometimes plus, sometimes minus, according to this wobbly snake, according to this sinus-like snake, which is drawn in the risings of Kundalini and so on. These are technical details which are put there 
and everybody who knows the technology knows what they are talking about, like why this technology of Hamsa, Hamsa, what has it got to do with the left and right? It has something to do with the left and right, but it's too elaborate, and since the purpose of this satsang is not to teach Kriya Yoga or to give an initiation in it tonight, therefore all these things will be postponed for the times when in Agama we actually do give such initiations. So you meditate on balancing the sun and the moon, which is so very important. You consecrate to Shiva, the Lord of Yoga, the Guru of the Gurus, and you go to that form of Shiva, which Vedantins call the unmanifested Brahman, Brahman in its pure transcendental form. These are the consecrations. So it says, consecrating this practice of doing Hamsa, 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 all the time, ceaselessly, one will bring forth by this means, bring forth, like it's there, but you don't see it, it's like a photo, in the old days when they did photo, the photo was exposed, and then it was put in a liquid, in a fluid, and in approximately 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes, the photo started coming forth, the black parts of it started coming forth, and suddenly you had low the photo, and then you had to take it out and to put it in a stopping fluid, and then you've got the photo, the processing, bringing forth, they use an expression which is very much like that, like you are going to bring forth by this something, like there is something which is in that photo, but you don't see it, there is something which is in you, and that something is Hamsa, which means Atman, which means your immortal soul. And if you do this practice, you will bring it forth. What was there, and nobody can see it, people meet on the street and they say, Hi Walter, hi Walter. While Swami Shivananda, when he wrote a book, or when he wrote even a letter, he said, Dear immortal souls, like he was not talking to your ego, he was talking to your Atman, and when he signed in the end, he said, Thy immortal soul, Swami Shivananda. Like I, Swami Shivananda, am talking now from my Atman. It's my soul talking to your soul exactly as with the Namaste. Namaste means my immortal soul salutes your immortal soul. Like when we meet with each other, we say, Hi Walter, Hi Walter. But you can also remember that you are more than Walter. That you are Atman. That Atman has to be brought forth. It's hidden. And it has to be like a photo. It has to be developed. It has to be brought forth. So he says by this method. He, you will, one will bring forth. The subtle and formless element. That resides as the basis of us all. What is this element. Which is the basis of us all. It's the soul. It's Atman. It's a metaphor. Because it's not earth and water. Your body is made of earth, water, fire, air and ether. But beyond these, there is a mind. The sixth element. And beyond the sixth element, there is one more element. Which is called consciousness or Atman. And that element is the most hidden of all. It's seven layers When you look at somebody and you say, look what an earthy body this person has. Look what a fiery body. Because you did yoga for a month or two or for a year or two. And you start seeing. 
You start seeing that people are fiery or airy or this or that. No? And then you look at somebody and you say, look the Atman, look the self, you can see the self. So this strophe beautifully says, by performing this Hamsa meditation, one brings forth, somehow it comes to the surface, you, can, you will see it one day, the subtle and formless element that resides as the basis of us all, which is the spirit. That's exactly what we do in August when we have a retreat that we call awakening of the spirit. Like, let's bring forth this spirit, which is latent. Everybody knows it exists. Nobody sees it. And it's very easy to know it intellectually, but very difficult to stick to it, to be one with it. And we continue. Twelve. One uses this mantra for the rites, the mantra is Hamsa, for the rites of Nyasa, starting by the heart and addressing all the limbs while repeating the ritual mantra Vaushat to Agni and Soma. This uh, strophe opens the door to a very special practice which only of you who have, those of you who did the tantric rituals workshop in Agama or a few other such practices will remember it and that is the practice of Nyasa. Nyasa is a very, very special practice belonging to the Tantric tradition by which, with the help of the fingers, mysterious energies are placed on the body, either of yourself or of somebody else, and this turns the body into an instrument of communication with the universe. It activates this latent resonance. And he now divagates and he says, I taught you yoga, kundalini, nada, visual auditory things, mantra, and so on. And he says, he mentions it, that this mantra also can be used for niyasa. Many niyasas contain the mantra hamsa into it, associated with other mantras. And he says, starting by the heart and addressing all the limbs, that's very peculiar, because niyasas that exist in yoga approximately, I can't even dare to count them, in my humble opinion, about 50 types of niyasa, perhaps more. And all these niyasas have various purposes in the tantric tradition. And we teach one such niyasa in the tantric rituals and people are practicing it. And uh, these niyasas have various functions. And here he basically, uh, you will know that, for example, when we do the niyasa in the tantric rituals, we start with the crown chakra. Then we go to the third eye. Then we go to Vishuddha Chakra. And therefore it's not starting from the heart. Don't take it as an absolute thing that if a teacher in a text says they can be used for Nyasa, starting from the heart and addressing all the limbs. This is a formalism. There are a hundred types of Nyasa which all of them start from a different place and end from a different place and they use a different set of points, acupuncture points or power points or chakras or other nodes of the network of nadis of the body with various purposes. And this is a whole science, it's a whole advanced science of Nyasa which only people who get very advanced in Tantra and other bodily oriented things may want to go deeper. And uh, again, this is about the ritual thing, and it gives some details. That's why it's utterly impossible for me tonight to go deeper into this, like exactly as I cannot teach you a Yoni Mudra, or exactly as I cannot teach you <coughs> whatever other 
practices Kriya Yoga as I described earlier, I cannot teach you Nyasa and it has never been the purpose of the satsangs that in satsangs I want to teach yoga. In satsangs I want to clarify your spirit, bring forth this Atman and I want to increase your aspiration and I want to show you the tradition and thus communicate with you about the world of yoga and spirituality. And thus, of course, I will not go into the details. Just remember that this Upanishad says that the mantra Nyasa can be used for rites of Nyasa. So it's one of the preferential mantras, starting by the heart and addressing all the limbs. But that's not compulsory. It can start from the limbs and go to the heart as well. So that's just a description, but it's not an absolute description. While repeating the ritual mantra Vaushat to Agni and Soma, he definitely has some particular Nyasa in his mind and takes it like I'm talking about that and all those of you who remember. He uses another mantra, which is a ritual mantra. It's even said that he uses the ritual mantra. It's not one of the mantras which yogis in India use too much for meditation and for going deeper. There are some, a few mantras, like Pats, Vaha, Vashat, Vaushat, and a few others, which are the six basic Vedic mantras, very powerful on Vishuddha Chakra, and they are used for Vedic rituals, like for fire ceremonies and for similar things. And here he mentions one of these. He takes one of these six Vedic mantras, and he says, uh, you use Hamsa together with whatever else it takes, because of course it takes more, which he doesn't mention, and addressing different parts of the body, and also not forgetting to say Vaushat, so it's like, it can be, you know, Hamsa, Aim Hrim, something, and then Vaushat, you know, and then this is how you create these Nyasas, only the experts talk about these things, that they know about these things, he makes an allusion to one of them just to say this is a very important mantra and it goes on this and he says repeating the ritual mantra Vaushat to Agni and Soma. Agni literally means fire and Soma is a very weird name which means upper moon and it refers to a chakra placed somewhere here at this level inside your mouth, deep inside your head and this Soma chakra and Soma means like the full moon, the perfect moon. It means the refined moon, the spiritual moon. Not the moon which makes you go in Svadhisthana and become an idiot, but the moon in Ajna Chakra. It's another moon than the normal moon. And Soma can be, you can push the meaning by calling it simply the moon. So basically here he says fire and moon. Fire and moon are just two very confusing ways of saying Yang and Yin, Ha and Ta, Sun and Moon. Instead of fire, instead of sun, he says Agni, which is fire. The sun is a sort of fire. And instead of moon, he says Soma, which is a sort of moon. It refers to the moon. <coughs> so it's oblique speaking. So that somebody who says, well, he says he spoke about the sun and the moon. And now he speaks about Agni and Soma. They are the same. But he talks in funny language. So if you are an outsider, you say maybe he's talking about something else. And then you get stuck. It's not something else. He reminds the fact that there are some things in the yoga practice which need to be done about the ha and the ta. 
Normally you would say Agni is fire and it's in Manipura Chakra because that's where fire is. Soma is here. So this guy says that you have to focus on Manipura and Vishuddha or on Manipura and Soma Chakra or what. Then you lost the meaning. You are lost in the labyrinth because a smart yogi used twisted words so that you won't see where the point is. The point is that by Agni and Soma, he means sun and moon, and he means ha and ta. So he says, there, there is possible to do some ritual things which are like fire ceremonies. Some yogic schools in this world are very much going into that. Some are not. Here in Agama, although we try to give to people access to some of these tantric rituals, for example, and so on, we are very much a school focused on the internal practice of yoga. Like you sit and you do your yoga. And then you don't need to have fire and sun and moon and other external things or rituals or use the mantra vasat or vaushat or others. And I'm not saying that that's bad in any way. I'm simply saying that uh, for most people in Agama, they prefer this practice where they work on the chakras, they use mantras, they use things, and the effects appear inside you as an organic, energetic effect. And he concludes this reference to the rituals while saying in the end of such rite, where it goes to the left and the right, the sun and the moon, one meditates on the swan that is nested in the heart, What's the swan that is nested in the heart? He doesn't mean the mantra. Now he means by it, Atman, the soul, your immortal soul. So he says in the end of such rite, does some offering to the sun and the moon and cancelling it, and one focuses centers, and one meditates in the Atman that is nested in the heart. Many people say, but Swami, didn't you say that Atman is in Sahasrara? Yes, but the yogis have a very special theory which we teach in Agama in levels 4, 5. When we teach the practice of yoga asana, a very important and emblematic practice of hatha yoga in which people are going into a reflection. There is a sort of accessing your soul by going via the heart. And great yogis like Ramana Maharishi or like my friend Sahajananda and so on, they use precisely this channel this ap approach to it, into in which you go there, and it's mentioned in this Upanishad as well. It says, in the end of such rites, one meditates on the swan that is nested in the heart, like, who am I? You meditate on Atman, on the self, which means on the Atman. Actually, the author can't take it anymore, and he says, if I say swan, 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 maybe they won't understand. So he says, one meditates on the swan which is in the heart, which means on the Atman, like, let's be clear, crystal clear. And then, in the shloka number 14, he gives a, vi a meditation, which is visual. He gives a sort of a visualization, based on the Upanishadic tradition, on the Vedanta, a little bit on the Tantric visualization tradition. So here is another practice, like if you are so passionate, if you are so fond of doing uh, the Kriya Yoga things, Hamsa and so on, which is again, it's uh, important technology by all means, then he wants to give something additional, like he wants to guide your meditation. Many people know, especially those of you who did yoga for years and years, 
that sometimes what is required in some yoga practices is a very clear momentum. Like you can reach out of routine that you do some yoga techniques, especially meditations and even kundalini technologies, you get to do them a little bit mechanically. And prayer can be done mechanically. And japa yoga can be done mechanically. And of course, ajapa japa can be done mechanically. And then you need to give it a purpose. It's like you need to point a finger to the moon, as the Zen masters say. It's like you need to go somewhere. And to give this momentum, he suggests here a sort of a devotional meditation. Like, let's, let's add something to it. We added some ritual. And now... We are adding some more. And in the strophe number 14, therefore, he says, For this swan, remember he was talking about Atman. The, the swan, which means the Atman. And he continues, he says, For this swan, so it's your Atman. What is it doing? Your Atman unites with Brahman, right? That's the meaning of yoga in a Christian bhakti mystical sense. That your soul unites with God. Your soul, like a drop of water, goes into the ocean where it came from and unites with God. The Christian mystics have said that this can be obtained through prayer and it shall be called Unio Mystica. The mystical union, the incomprehensible union that you will get reunited with God. And then you have reached salvation, perfection, then you have reached the kingdom of heaven, this is what the Christian saints are supposed to have done. All the authentic Christian saints are men and women who reached Unio Mystica. And not for five seconds accidentally, one day when they watched a beautiful sunset. They reached it thousands of times every day for prolonged duration of time, usually using fasting, austerity, brahmacharya, and, of course, a lot of prayer, a lot of technology of prayer. So, um, therefore, the idea is not only in Upanishads or in the Hindu mysticism, that your soul goes back to God. It's like God has dropped a drop of immortality here, and you, with gratitude, you say, thank you for giving me eternal life, and you go back to meet your maker. You go back, and this is love. This is Ishvara Pranidhana. This is surrender. This is attraction. So the soul, some authors in Catholic Christianity, they even call it the chemical weddings, the mystical weddings, like the Dutch mystic called Ruisbroek, who wrote exactly like this. He called it the mystical uh, weddings in which prayer and spiritual realization, it means the wedding between your soul and God. Jesus, God, is the groom, and your soul is the bride. All of you have a female soul who loves Jesus as a bride loves her groom. And all the desire is to unite with Jesus. And of course... Uh, this is done through prayer and all the other mystical things. So he says, for this one, now this one, this, this soul of yours, wants to go in Sahasrara, to unite with God. In Tantric Hinduism, they say Kundalini from Muladhara, which is your Shakti, she wants to go to Sahasrara, like 
catching the soul. It's a bigger wave which includes the heart, but it comes even from lower than the heart, and it wants to go to God in Sahasrara, and there, there should be the union of Shakti and Shiva, which is the state of Samadhi. So it's the same formalism with slight variations, which is used in so many forms of mysticism. So here now he gives an image. He says for this swan, hey, the swan, when you see a swan, you can see it sitting with a S-shaped neck, or you can see a swan flying. And when it flies, it's like an arrow. It can fly for 4,000 kilometers, migrating from north to south, according to the seasons. So the swan is like an arrow, it can fly. So he says, for this swan, Agni and Soma mentioned before, if you remember, Agni and Soma are the wings, which is very relevant, it means yin and yang, plus and minus, the sun and the moon are the wings. But what are the wings? The wings are what makes the bird fly. So if you had no yin and yang, if you had no ida and pingala, this whole thing wouldn't work. It's because you have polarity that you are alive and incarnated and in a body and you have two brain hemispheres and you have the male and the female and this game of yin and yang, which the Taoist call I Ching, the book of transformation, it's, this is the whole universe come from the dance of yin and yang and it is from this, these are the wings of your soul. The breath, Inhale and exhale, hum and sa, the polarity. This is the wing. The, the fact that we have polarity is the motor of the universe and it's the motor of the evolution. So, for this one, Agni and Soma are the wings. Now he goes considering the, swan, the Atman a swan. It's a metaphor. So he says, if this Atman has been called a swan... Let's make this a little bit colorful. If your soul is a swan, what are its wings? Well, the Ida and the Pingala, the sun, the moon and the sun, respectively. Agni and Soma are the wings. Aum is the head. Suddenly he brings us the mantra Aum, which is omnipresent in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, in the Vedas, in the Upanishads. So suddenly it says, where did we get Aum from? Aum is the head. That's where it goes. Aum being the Bija Mantra of Ajna Chakra. That's very significant. So Aum is the head. The wings are the minus and the plus. A, U and M are its three eyes. Big slap over the head for the people who keep on pronouncing the mantra Aum, Om. Because it's not Om. Om, you can practice it on the street. When you speak colloquially on the street in Hindi, then you can say Om. Hari Om, Hari Om, Babaji, Hari Om. And so that you can say. But Om is A, U, M. Even here in this analogy, it says A and U and M are its three eyes. Like this swan is like Shiva. It has three eyes. Not two. It's not O and M. It's A and U, and M. It's absolutely compulsory that the mantra Aum has to be triadic. You cannot reduce it to two letters. It has, it must be made of three letters. 
And even here it says this mantra which is the head and then in particular it's like A-U-M, right? A-U-M are its three eyes. Imagine a swan with three eyes like Shiva, which is your soul basically. Rudra and his consort are the two paws. Um, I would have expected from this author to make it really, really, really precise to the millimeter. I would have been impressed really. Because Rudra, in the yoga psychology of yoga, Rudra corresponds to Manipura Chakra. All those of you who took the initiation in Manipura Chakra here in Agama, you know that Rudra Shiva is the symbol for Manipura. And he has a consort and all that. And he says Rudra and his consort, like the masculine and the feminine of Manipura Chakra, are its paws. Like when a swan is flying, the head is up front, and the paws are in the back like this. So it's like, imagine this like a swan which goes up till here, Ajna Chakra with Aum, and it starts from somewhere here. Like all this is a swan. You know, I look in the mirror and I draw a swan over the shape of my body. This is my soul flying up vertically to God. No? Um, he doesn't, because he says later something which shows that for him this meditation very much goes from Vishuddha Chakra and up. So he doesn't mention Manipura, and that's why this mention of you know, Rudra Shiva and his concert is a little bit dissonant. It's not a very inspired visualization. He could have done better, or at least he shouldn't have mentioned Vishuddha Chakra a bit later, just a couple of lines lower. And that's why I feel that here the author has been a little bit like, it could have been polished a little bit more. If I would rewrite this Upanishad, I would adjust this metaphor here, because it can be done slightly better. So, you have a swan which is your soul, flying high for mystical aware. Agni and Soma are the wings, your yin and yang. Aum is the head, and A-U-M are the three eyes in that head. And Rudra and his consort are the two poles. Such are the visualizations used in this double rite that is done starting from the throat and up. If you want to do it with Rudra, Shiva and his consort as the pose of the swan, you, you should do it from your belly button and up. That would be correct, strictly metaphysically. But he recommends like you should see like a swan from here to here, like a smaller swan, and that's kind of your soul rising. It went from Anahata, from Hrid, it went even higher and it's in Vishuddha, which is Udana Vayu, the rising energies. This is where the upsurge comes. And then it goes towards Ajna Chakra. He didn't mention Sahasrara, except at some point where he mentioned the six chakras and then Brahmarandra when he talked about Kundalini Yoga. But now he simply says, if you do this Hamsa, Hamsa, and you get stuck, you don't have the zest, you don't have the upsurge, then add, why not, a visualization. Like your soul is a swan with, a three, eye, with three eyes and all that. And he says, this, this could be a recommendation for a visualization from throat and up. By this means, the spirit is uplifted. So besides doing hamsa, hamsa, you make a visualization, and one obtains the expected benefit without having to repeat the mantra indefinitely. He says if you get stuck and you don't do something to stir it up, 
then you are going to have to repeat the mantra indefinitely. Like Yogananda says, a million years, maybe a hundred thousand years, because your practice has no juice. Your practice has become dry and mechanical and uninspired, you know. And then he says, if you add to it some devotional thing that my soul is soaring high towards God, then the meditation will suddenly become way more efficient and then you won't have to repeat the mantra indefinitely. See, this is a man of experience. He knows what's happening when you do practice mechanically. He has been there, done that, and he's teaching his disciples very clearly, don't do just the practice mechanically. It's not just about doing hamsa, 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 because it's not a hocus-pocus. It's about waking up. It's about awareness. It's about mystical union. All this adventure of the spiritual practice. And you have to be up to it. And then the strophe number 15 is the shortest of them. It's just one line, this one. And it continues. It says, then you will get the expected benefit. What's the expected benefit? Salvation, moksha, mukti, liberation. So you will obtain it without having to repeat the mantra indefinitely. And in the shloka 15, or strophe 15, which is just a verse, he actually explains. He says, because the spirit of the adept is awakened by the grace of the swan. Remember, swan means Atman, and great swan, Paramahamsa, means God. God is also a swan, but God is the macrocosmic swan, while yours is the microcosmic swan. So he says, if you do like this, like my soul is soaring high, then the spirit is awakened by the grace of the swan. Your own Atman, God, Brahman, the consciousness, the divine nature in you and in the universe, which is the same, to say, awakens you by grace. There is no awakening without grace. Without grace, you would have to repeat the mantra, he says, indefinitely. Like you are just a parrot, who, like you are like a gramophone plate who got stuck on one channel and goes saying hamsa, 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 hamsa. But there is no spirit to it. The spirit comes by adding a bit of zest into it. Like he describes different practices, rituals, and now this visualization. So it's good for you as well to understand that sometimes, you know, and he says this, this you'll obtain it because your spirit is awakened by the grace of the swan, which means by the grace of Atman, Brahman, by the grace of God. And in the Shloka 16, he suddenly starts going again into the technology which he mentioned a little bit in the 8, when he said that in the 9, which says that Rana, uh, Nada, I'm sorry, sounds like a pure crystal and in the body and all that. And then he dropped it. He didn't insist too much. He comes back to that. Like he feels he needs to say more about that. And here you are going to hear things which you hear in our lectures of Laya Yoga. That there exists an internal sound which is generally called Nada. And this internal sound sounds in different ways higher and higher, more and more refined. And if you go into this internal sound, this internal sound goes all the way to the crown chakra and it produces states of samadhi, states of enlightenment. 
and he doesn't explain exactly how you mix this with everything else. How does this mix with Kundalini Yoga, which he described in the beginning? How does this mix with uh, Kriya Yoga and so on? Uh, he doesn't intend to, because this is not a teaching text. This is a remembrance, it's a reminder, it's a memento type of text. All the yoga texts are not meaning to teach you, they're just meaning to remind you some basic ideas. And the text number 16 goes beautifully into this. He says, thus, one can also achieve the divine sound by repeating the mantra 10 million times. I haven't even bothered to try to evaluate what 10 million times take. Like, you can calculate it. If you'd say Hamsa, is one every four seconds. Multiply four seconds with 10 million, that's four million seconds, and then try to find out how many hours of yoga practice that means. It might mean 30 years of yoga practice or something. So he says one can also achieve the divine sound by repeating the mantra, like if you repeat Hamsa 10 million times, then you will start hearing the divine sound. The divine sound is called in the Vedantic tradition of India, Shabda Brahman, Brahman or God as manifested as sound. It's very important to know that this is again a universal experience, exactly as people describe God as light. There have been mystics that heard God as the thunder and as the sound. A typical example of it is the Roman Catholic Spanish Christian saint called Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila describes very clearly that in her mystical states of absorption, she felt the energy of God, like a waterfall of sound. This is what she calls it. A waterfall of sound. Imagine the energy like a waterfall, which produces a sound. And this sound, in the moment when it falls over the top of my head, I'm like gone. I'm like absorbed in God. I'm like completely gone into a mystical state. This is called Shabda Brahman in India. Brahman as sound. And uh, he says here, he gives, I don't know if he makes a joke or he means it literally, or he just says many, 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 many times you have to repeat this mantra, and uh, 10 million times. Here in Agama, we have a technology called Laya Yoga with sound, which nowadays is being taught in the level 4 of the Agama teaching. And this Laya Yoga with sound teaches you how to hear this internal sound and work with it, way before repeating the mantra Hamsa 10 million times. So it's a very, very perfect, exceptional methodology, which many people in Agama love, which gives you the secret of working with all the mantras and which gives you this technology of the inner sound or the nada. And thus, he says, okay, even with the mantra Hamsa, but apparently very slowly, you can reach this divine sound, and he says this sound will manifest then in ten ways as it follows. If I remember correctly, Hatha Yoga Pradipika describes eleven or twelve ways in which it manifests. So not every author finds exactly the same scale, because every guru speaks from their personal experience, or from some fundamental text which they quote from before their time, and thus the descriptions are slightly different, while the essence is perfectly the same. He says this sound and it's valid for those of you who can hear these internal sounds, which are not a disease or a problem, on the contrary. 
he describes it to give a hint to his disciples. So he says this sound, which is a reflection of the divine sound, but in the beginning you don't realize it's the divine sound. You hear a shadow of it, an echo of it, a reflection of it. This sound will manifest then in ten ways as follows. And he says, first, we hear the sound chin, like a mantra. It's written chin. Chin is a very special sound in the Indian culture, in the Sanskrit history, because it's a sound which is supposed to be an onomatopoeic sound of silver bars or gold bars knocking on each other. If you have two objects which are of pure silver, like two coins, or two little coins or something made of gold, in the moment when they hit each other accidentally, they, pro they produce a very sweet sound. Try, if you have two pieces of pure silver or something, they produce a sweet sound. That sound was called chin. Chin, 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 like when little pieces of gold or silver hit each other. In onomatopoeic Sanskrit, that's called chin. So he means you are going to hear, not like a symbol, like one of these steel symbols or bowls which produces a stronger sound. It's more like a little pieces of silver clanging onto each other. But that clanging is chin. And then he says, second, chini-chini. Chini-chini is an onomatopoeic game. It's like you have 20 pieces of silver dropping over another 20 pieces of silver, which means it's more, it's a lot of chin. It's chini-chini, it's like a roll of chini, like you have a bag of silver coins and you pour it, and it's chini-chini. So that sound becomes stronger and amplified in this way. The third sonority is that of a bell. These bells for meditation, like when this chini-chini becomes more, then it's like, bong, bing, like a real beautiful bell, which bells were used in Tibet and in India a lot for summoning up these sounds. The fourth of a conch shell. He means the conch shells which they blow in India, or sometimes you use over the year, but more like these sonorous conch shells, which are used for rituals, and kids are playing with them and all that. The fifth of a chord, like from a conch shell, it becomes like a chord, like in a rudravina. It becomes a chord, a monochord. The sixth of a symbol. So from a... It's very difficult, like it's a bit playful. What's the difference between a bell and a symbol? Well, probably the author had in his mind some very specific uh, medieval Indian musical instruments. And for them, the bell sounded this way and the symbol sounded in a more refined way. The symbol is a bit higher, better than the bell. Bell, conch shell, chord, symbol, the seventh of a flute, the eighth of a drum, the ninth of a large cavity. It doesn't mean a tooth cavity or something. It means a cavity like a cave, like oh, like an echo, like oh, like an echo sound, like a very big instrument with a large cavity or some natural cavity. And finally, the tenth is that of the thunder. That's what we tell to people who practice Laya Yoga. Practice your mantra in Laya Yoga until your mantra becomes as loud as the thunder. You see, there are scriptural reasons for this, which are not all of them explained when we teach, but which are 
in the scriptures of India, that this sound which you hear inside, and which in the beginning is very delicate, barely hearable, and very crystal-like, it becomes stronger and stronger until it becomes like a thunder. Next time when it thunders, try to think that that's your nada, that's your internal sound, that's your mantra. How loud, like a booming thunder. He doesn't mean a distant thunder. He means a very present thunder. So that's again an advice for practice. So here suddenly he says, these mantras, even hamsa, when you practice them in various ways, they start producing an internal sound, which is the superior way of using the mantras, the Laya Yoga form, the Laya Yoga methodology, and that sound evolves through 10 different steps, and the first ones are very very, very thin, very, very delicate sounds, and the last one is like the thunder. And before the thunder, it was like the echo of a large cavity. Like, ooh, no, some sound in a cavity. 17. One must let go of the first nine sonorities, like, and focus the attention on the tenth, if you can. So, first you have to reach to the tenth, and then you have to stay with the tenth. Like, The sound of God is like thunder. God sounds like the thunder in your internal universe. So one should focus the attention on the tenth, which is that of the thunder. That's Shabda Brahman. Shabda Brahman sounds in your head like the thunder. 18. At the first, so now it gives effects. Like if you go through this process of Nada Yoga, Laya Yoga then what's going to happen? He wants to encourage you. And he says that the first sonority, what's the first sonority? The sonority is chin. Like delicate silver bars clanging on each other, eh? clinging with each other. At the first sonority, the body of the practitioner sounds like chin-chini. Chin-chini. Like there is something in your nadis, in your kundalini, in your energy. There is a sound in your energy. Very delicate. At the second, this one disappears. This sonority doesn't sound. Many people doing Laya Yoga, they hear, then they don't hear anymore. And they say, did I lose it? No, it just went more subtle. At the third, the lotus of the heart is pierced. Like when you hear it, like the sonority of a bell. When you hear the nada as a bell, it means your heart chakra has been opened. Therefore, forcing yourself to hear the nada as a bell, will open your heart chakra. That's a method of opening the heart chakra. Via the nada. <clears throat> That's why this name of anahata nada is not completely coincidental. There is a double entendre there, because at one of the steps of this process, it even does something to your heart chakra. And here it says at the third, the lotus of the heart is pierced. Pierced by kundalini, like a it go, the energy runs through it. It's not blocked anymore. It's not stuck. At the fourth, the head trembles. Like in the moment when the Laya Yoga goes beyond a certain level, there will be people feel like a vibration in the head. Strange. And of course, there are people who come and ask about this. So we know that it happens. Nineteen. At the fifth, the palate sweats. The palate is this. This part, the vault of the palate. And there is a favorite theory which says that if this part is getting so energized, then your soma chakra gets energized and the soma will even physically 
start to produce some hormones which are psychedelic, like DMT, sort of your own uh, pituitary gland DMT, start sweating through your mucous membranes of the head, and thus somehow your physical body goes into a different mode. So at the fifth, the palate sweats. That's completely absurd according to modern medicine. And it's a typical mystical experience which is mentioned in many yogic texts. And those of you who studied the Jalandharabandha technology here in Agama, you know that this we went deeper into this theory with soma being produced in the area of the mouth. At the sixth, so when you get the sixth sound, again, you should corroborate the fifth sound was, even I don't remember them by heart, the fifth sound was that of a chord, and the sixth is that of a cymbal. As the sound goes higher, that's enough for you to realize. At the sixth one, one drinks the ambrosia. The ambrosia is called in Sanskrit soma or amrita, and it means what it meant in the Greek culture, the nectar which the gods of Mount Olympus were drinking. It's a supposed liquid, which some people think it's external, but the yogis think it's produced by your own endocrine gland, so it's internal. And when that liquid is happening, then a lot of psychoactive and physiological things are happening. And some people believe that that level, with the proper technology associated to it, can make one physically live forever. Like if you start getting this liquid in your mouth, which is coming from your pituitary gland and other sources, which are not fully understood by modern medicine, then even your body will transform and you'll start becoming a superhuman or something. So he relates it with the sound. He says when you get to hear the nada as a symbol, then it's in soma and higher, and one drinks ambrosia. And again, it's not that simple because the yogis have a whole technology. Then they say if this ambrosia you swallow it like simple saliva, it goes in your stomach and the acid in your stomach will kill it and then it's wasted. So you have to do something not to swallow it and that's called Jalandharabandha. There's a whole story which some of you who are more advanced in Agama uh, studies, you have known, you know that there is some more technology added to this, which he doesn't bother to mention because this is what you learn from a guru. At the seventh one, at the seventh one sees the mystery the mystery. Whatever the mystery is, one sees the mystery. That is a very beautiful metaphoric way of saying that one reaches higher states of consciousness. This soma is doing its effect. It's taking you higher. At the eighth, one hears the word and here he doesn't say sound. He uses the word vak is the sound, goddess sound, and then there is the word which is the very essence of God. Like in the Bible, in the beginning there was the word called in Greek logos, in the first translations of the Bible, the logos. In the first there was the word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. And even Jesus is called the logos or the word. Jesus is the word of God, because he is an avatar. And thus, at the 8th one, one hears the word. Word, it's simply a word, vak, is a word which, like paravak, it designates the nature of the supreme shakti, 
the ultimate manifestation of the energy, which is the Logos, the Word of God. At the ninth, the body becomes invisible, whatever he means by that. We don't know if he means it literally. Invisibility is considered in the yoga traditions of India and Tibet a relatively minor city, which Patanjali describes as coming from the state of Samyama on Manipura Chakra and on the shape of one's body, just to remind it because the lectures on Yoga Sutra of Patanjali are out there on the internet. It's true, they are big and many, and not many of you will have the patience to go through them. But it's one of the 30 cities mentioned by Patanjali in the third chapter of the Yoga Sutra. And therefore, why would invisibility come here when it's not such a big thing? Like, why not levitation? Why not uh, pyrokinetics? Why not other cities? You know, why invisibility? We don't understand, and we don't understand what he means, that after you hear the word, which is the getting in contact with Paravak, at the ninth stage, the body becomes invisible, like the large cavity sound. The body becomes invisible, and the divine eye without impurity opens. The divine eye without impurity is Ajna Chakra, totally purified, totally activated. So he says, if you reach to the ninth level of this Nada, your Ajna Chakra will open completely, and also the body becomes invisible. I have read a few accounts of some yogis who did some funny experiments like this, and one of them was afraid of involuntary invisibility or dematerializing his body involuntarily or something. There are some anecdotes to the yogic lore about these things, but um, it's not explained. This comes like this, you know, it's like it comes without any prior preparation, without any subsequent explanation. It simply says at the ninth level of nada, what he remembers to say is the, he, the body becomes invisible. It doesn't mean in a subtle way or what, or physically or something. And the divine eye without impurity opens, which is more clear. It means full-on arousal of Ajna Chakra, 100%. And then he says, of course, at the tenth, when the sound, when the nada has become like the thunder, he becomes Brahman, he becomes God, achieving the union of the spirit, or Atman, with Brahman. That's beautiful, Unio Mystica. He, doesn't, he says you become God, but you become God by the drop going to the ocean. This is how the Unio Mystica works, by the drop going to the ocean. So here, in the last four strophes, he has described the practice of Nada Yoga, Laya Yoga, starting with the mantra Hamsa and saying that somehow the mantra Hamsa, he noticed, also leads to this internal sound. And then by working with this internal sound and refining it in 10 different steps, it goes higher and higher. And then you don't focus so much on the swan, which is with Rudra and his consort and with three eyes and something, because some people are more visual, some people are more auditory. And lo, that somehow he managed to give something for everybody. Working with sound, working with energy, like for kinesthetic people, working with visualization. One way or another, everybody can get a way, a path, a method, can distillate a path in this. And this is how we reach to the last of the strophes of this Upanishad, which is the number 21, which concludes beautifully. Hence a fourth, and by that, 
So from the moment when one he reaches this and through this practice, so from that moment and by that practice, the spirit being dissolved into spirit, Atman being dissolved into Paramatman, the spirit being dissolved into spirit, mystical union, union mystica, the duality of trial and error having vanished. There is a strange thing in this trial and error because it also means it alludes to this that you are doing good things and bad things. Like there is sin and virtue which he mentions also further. So this trial and error, like the human being who has reached that kind of level is not, you know, doesn't need to at that level of consciousness for God there is no need for trial and error in any way. There is no error. Whatever is tried is successful. So by that, the spirit being dissolved into spirit, the duality of trial and error having vanished, the merit and sin having been burned, at the level of Brahman there is no more merit and sin. You did five months of karma yoga for Agama, and therefore you have accumulated merit. You have sponsored a Buddhist monk to live in a monastery for two years, and therefore you have acquired merit. There is no more merit and sin. At, that, at the level of Ramakrishna doing this, there is no need. The merit and sin are surpassed. He can talk about it for the other people. He can teach about it. People, be smart. Make merit. Create merit, which means create positive spiritual karma. Don't sin. Don't create negatives. Don't make God angry. No, create positive spiritual karma. That's not valid for Milarepa. Milarepa has no more. He's not interested anymore in merit and sin. Except if he's a great teacher and then he wants to lead by example. He wants to inspire people by personal example. But he does it with a tongue in his cheek. Like, look, I'm doing merit. Do like me, you know, like I'm not doing any merit, I'm beyond merit and sin. But I could do it just to play a sort of a histrionical theater to inspire the other, see this is how you should do. It's exactly like Buddha inspires his Sangha, his community, and he does some karma yoga in the monastery. He goes to the kitchen and peels some potatoes or boils some rice. Doesn't really need to do it, because he's beyond that. At the level of Brahman, all these things, in, when one goes to Sahasrara, all these things are surpassed. So, because the trial and error, the merit and the sin have been burned, vanished, the eternal Shiva emerges. So, one understands Shiva as God, it's a realization of Shiva. At the same time, spirit and Shakti. At the same time, Purusha and Shakti. This is a very important statement. Because the author of this text, as he demonstrated it in the commentary which I did last week, again, he doesn't see the ultimate spiritual realization just as spirit. Purusha. He sees it as spirit and Shakti. Which means Bhava Samadhi, which means the integral spirituality, the integral realization. So, he then... All the dualities have vanished, the merit and sin having been burned. The eternal Shiva emerges, like one is in the presence of the divine. At the same time, spirit and Shakti, which means at the same time transcendental and immanent. At the same time, unmanifested and manifested. Omnipresent, shining by himself, 
pure, enlightened, eternal, without characteristics, forever appeased. This is attested by the tradition. He basically says, I did not make this up. This is coming from this long Upanishadic and Indian spiritual tradition. And he says, one, from that moment, Shiva emerges. At the same time, spirit and Shakti, so it's a global accomplishment. Shiva being then extolled, praised as omnipresent, shining by himself like the light of God, which is self-effulgent, like Prakasha or like the Western tradition about the light of God, pure, enlightened, eternal, without characteristics, forever appeased. Appeased, which means like an ocean without waves. God is in its supreme form, just appeased. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. That's the ultimate. No, it's exactly like Jesus who says, Take my peace, receive my peace. But he says, my peace is not the peace of this world. The peace of this world is one thing, and the spiritual peace is something completely different. And he says, so one reaches there, and reaching to this Shiva forever appeased, this is attested, attested like a, he uses a word which is like a legal confirmation, like a notari, notarial stamp, you know, it's like this is attested, by the tradition. And there is a short verse, which like in the previous Upanishad, simply says, such is the Upanishad. This was our reading and explanation of a beautiful Upanishadic text, which is finding so many correspondences in Agama and in the Tantric Yoga. It is an Upanishadic text, the Hamsa Upanishad, describing three, four, five major methods of working with the final result of uniting the individual soul with the universal soul, which is, of course, the academic definition of yoga, achieving the state of yoga. With this, we finish for now. Thank you all for joining and having the patience.